away from Arcadia. It is Victor, and I am here again with Simon, my co-host, and we are going to give you a quick rundown of one of the books that we read to do research on our canon episodes. Today, we are going to be talking about Fool's Luck, The Way of the Commoner. This is an interesting book. It is not necessarily exactly what you expect it to be based on the title. It tries to do a lot of different things, to different levels of success. Simon, what are your overall like opening thoughts on Fool's Luck and what it is and how you feel about it? Well, I have really good memories of this book, and I don't think reading it for this project ruined it exactly, but looking at it with a magnifying glass as opposed to just you know, reading it in little five-minute bursts, I noticed a lot of the seams that I, I think I missed on my first read-through. This book tries to be a bridge from the Resurgence War to Kingdom of Willows, War in Concordia-ish. It doesn't do the worst possible job of that. I still think I prefer either Kingdom of Willows or Warring Concordia over this book, but as laying foundation, it does a pretty decent job of that. What's your, like, 10,000-foot view of this book, Victor? My 10,000-foot view of this book is it's three different books, and I really kind of love the first one. It's not without its flaws, and we'll talk about them later, but overall, I really love the first third of this book. The middle is okay and terribly nondescript, and I really don't have any use for the last third. The first section is all history. This book has the best history of the Fae I've ever read in any book. It's detailed, it expands into areas no other books touch on in ways that are very useful for your game. It's the sort of thing that I would directly invoke for Remembrance, it's, it's just juicy and comprehensive, and it adds meaningfully to the game line. I really like it. The middle part is what tries to be, hey, here's what it's like to be a commoner, and it's really generic. And yeah, the end is all storyteller stuff, and again, it just rehashes a lot of things that I just don't feel like make any sense in a book with this mission statement. It's kind of all over the place, although not quite like the other books we've reviewed. The thing I kept coming back to reading it this time was that this is sort of the anti-Shining Host book, where Shining Host is kind of Kith Book She, Volume 1. This is trying to be Kith Book Commoner. At least like the second two-thirds of it read that way. I don't know if it really succeeded at that very well. I don't really know what Kithbook Commoner would look like, but I do feel like this wasn't a great attempt at that, if that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, that is very accurate. 
I think it makes sense to jump into those three sections individually. The first section being the history of the Fae, I thought was really useful. It builds out the resurgence wars that happen in Europe. We talk about that in detail in our resurgence and the warring periods episode. So I don't really want to go into too many details, but it does add meaningful canon. It's the only book that really talks about the interregnum in usable detail. While it's a little bit heavy on the this is human history, not really changeling history, I could get that elsewhere. There are definitely tidbits in there that are usable and enrich the game world in those time periods. And I like that at least one book in the line did that. My biggest frustration was there's just like this sprinkling of low-grade racism. I don't know any other way to describe it. Most of the first you know, third of the book I really like. And then I'll hit like the section where they talk about the civil war and they choose to call it the war between states, which is a, you are giving away your political alignment when you use that terminology. And then they only talk about it in terms of uh, its relationship to the dream of national identity. They don't bother mentioning slavery. And I get it. You maybe don't want to put that in a game, but then don't invoke a term that in combination with omitting slavery means a specific thing. It just was very uncomfortable when the Nunyahi get mentioned. It's always in very weirdly colonialist dismissive tones and like explicitly dismissive. That was the hardest part I had with the first third of the book. I would say There were probably three or four sections of the history chapter where I like I had that gut reaction, but most of it I thought was really good and usable and expanded the game. What were your thoughts on its usability and or those moments when they came up for you? There's some really quality like story hooks in the the interregnum section and I'd even like expand that a little bit back into the the sundering section of the history timeline because it includes some of my not favorite things like the she showing up in the new world for no reason but it gives some context for the war of the courts slash the war of seasons depending on whether or not you want to include dark ages fey as the uh prequel the low grade I don't even know if it's low grade in some places <laughs> racism like it, I think in some places it's just straight up racism like especially the civil war thing like if you're going to bring up the civil war but not explicitly be like hey guys so chattel slavery exists and it's bad this is the reason for the war remember that maybe just don't bring it up at all the reason I say don't bring it up at all is because There's a brief period in American history before the formation of the United States, but after the Revolutionary War, where there was a failed government, they go out of their way to mention that the thing that came before Concordia was based on that failed government, except, you know, in real world history, that failed government lasted less than a decade. In dreaming, changelings doing stuff history, that failed government lasts from the Revolutionary War till the Resurgence, 
and they don't really give it any definition in any like useful kind of way like inserting the civil war into the pre-united states federation that existed doesn't make any sense because a big part of the american civil war was about whether or not having a national identity mattered and the federation of the colonies or whatever it was called was very weak on central government so if you're basing you know the changelings government on that thing there wouldn't have been a civil war like they'd have just been like oh look at those mortals doing mortal things we don't care because it's just so divorced from so many of the things especially when you take chattel slavery out of the picture that like why would they have an opinion at all yeah it's it's also interesting because i just listened to an episode of npr through line where they were talking about where did the judicial supremacy that defines the supreme court as we understand it today come from it's a shockingly young legal precedent basically desegregation and they talked through the whole history of like how we got to that point and the role that Lincoln played in that and you know prior to Lincoln and it's all about this is the the term they use the dream of judicial supremacy and the path to getting there and the people that had this vision for it and it really does actually kind of stand in pretty well for the dream of how our nation works and how leadership works and i assume that you know the justification for having this longer standing temporary government is well it doesn't have to perfectly match you know the american dream it's what the changelings were doing it's the same way that in the contemporary setting it's not like america is run on feudalism exactly but at the same time when you are an emergence of the dreams of humanity, it's really hard to justify being that divorced. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me either. I would much rather changeling society, especially in the time before the resurgence, actually be some sort of distorted reflection of the cultural dreams of the time. Maybe you're going to get to something sooner through the dreaming than it would fully manifest in the real world, because the dream comes before physical actualization but that's not what they do they don't really draw any parallels like that referring back to what you said about the whole idea that the she came over here before the humans the one thing that i that they did that i found interesting is they only mentioned the cathane coming over to america before the rest of columbus and everything else happened in two discrete places they put very defined physical boundaries around it and they're both a reference to either real-world folklore or real-world archaeological evidence. The first is trolls coming over, and that's clearly meant to be representative of the Norse making it over into the Canadian coast, which happened. We have archaeological evidence of that, but they didn't stick around. Okay, fine. That's isolated, and they left, and that doesn't act as a stand-in for she owes or any of the weird things that it's used to justify later the other example they give is of this particular tribe of indigenous people who clearly intermarried with welsh fairies and i looked that up because they gave it a specific name and there is a myth around that in the real world 
but there's no archaeological evidence of it. The thing about that is it's very limited in geographic scope. It only goes as far as Kentucky in terms of going west, and it only covers a certain part of the eastern coastline in terms of where there's even vague sort of folklore precedent for that. And so they did have that story, but they bounded it in a way that prevents it from being used as justification for what the she do when they descend on San Francisco. And I thought that was really interesting. I feel like it's a good book to put those boundaries on, and I, I've never seen that in any other books. I think part of my underlying problem with the history section, and I don't know if this is really distinct from the racism thing or not, is that it takes very complicated things and distills them down to this is what the changelings thought about it. And like not very nuanced opinions. The American Civil War gets broken down to moderates in the North and conservative idealists in the South have a war for some reason, which really turns terrifically awful war about, you know, whether or not human beings should be property into tradition versus banality. Woo, which I guess is one of the themes of Changeling, but this is a really ugly place to try to shoehorn that in. You also get into World War One and World War Two, and both of those are very awkwardly handled. World War Two, in particular, I think they forgot that the whole idea of white as a group, you know, whiteness is a modern idea, like very modern and you know, nobody hates Europeans like other Europeans do, especially during the World Wars. They have very little to say about the horrifying elements of World War II other than the Knockers were the only changelings who were upset by the existence of concentration camps. If you're going to make a war about banality versus not banality, like World War One and World War II would be perfect because World War One was the meat grinder of banality, like making a factory to destroy human beings, and World War II was literally making factories to destroy human beings. Like, let's talk about the banality of evil. Let's talk about where human misery and banality happen to be kind of the same thing. And they don't do it. And they throw in a weird, especially in light of Kith Book Knocker, perhaps a bit racist <laughs> comment about Knockers, being the only ones who care about the Jews for a reason and nobody else does like it's just as much as I like this section of the book the underlying tone here is missed opportunities and missed opportunities because white people are ahistorical <laughs> having gone through kind of some of the worst parts of the chapter I do kind of want to pivot to where it gets better I feel like this chapter improves a lot once you get out of the World Wars, especially once you get into the Accordance War itself. I really feel like Changeling does a very good job when focusing on its own canon and not necessarily trying to represent really delicate aspects of, of real-world history. When you get into the Accordance War itself, you get descriptions of specific battles and who was involved, and some canon names are dropped. It's the sort of thing where as I was reading it, 
I thought, I could really imagine playing a character that lived through this. Either a very old grump, or someone who lived through this in a previous life and is experiencing it via remembrance. And sharing this part of the book with a character as memories come back to them. And it's it was very usable and approachable in a way I'm not used to Changeling History sections being. I also felt like it set up a very believable set of experiences to base current biases on. So instead of just the abstraction of the commoners don't like the she, the she don't like the commoners, you get things like the fall of Silver Pines, and there's a whole narrative set of things that you can do with that. I wish that if they were going to have tackled the interregnum in the detail that they tackled it in, they'd done it with a bit more care. And I would perhaps go so far as to say not just care, but like overt editorial criticism. I've talked with developers of books more recently who were willing to just take the work that was handed to them by a writer and be like, nope, this is racist, not going to publish it. And I know that deadlines were nuts and there wasn't the same creative control given to people back in the day, but that doesn't really excuse some of the results that you see in this chapter. Even the part before we get to the resurgence war, like, generally, it's useful. You need to go at it with a, this was written in the 1990s, red pen, but... The thing I thought was really interesting about the Resurgence War section was reading it gave me a sense of deja vu. It reads a lot like my abstracts for when I write campaigns or adventures. <laughs> like I could imagine somebody like originally started that section as a, I'm going to write a dreaming adventure book about the Resurgence War, and then they never quite got around to finishing it. <laughs> There's a lot of parts of it that have a lot of detail, and then there's a lot of parts of it that, like, you look at it and you go, oh, didn't quite think that through, but good effort. To be totally fair, the way this text tends to get used by storytellers and even players is, I'm scouring it for something I can use for a hook for my campaign or a character backstory, and I'm going to flesh it out the rest of the way myself. So in a, in a purely practical standpoint, I think the chapter totally succeeds at giving you a bunch of fodder for that. It's fodder that reads consistently. One thing I have to say about this book, because we complain about this a lot, and I have to give credit where credit is due, these writers clearly read the rest of the line. They make consistent references to other books. They make sense. They're often usable, especially in this first third of the book, not always through the rest of the book. Probably one of the biggest wins here for me is a sense of continuity with the rest of the line, and I am not used to giving that praise to Changeling books. Even like the resurgence section of this book, you know, I just got done saying the, the history section doesn't do enough introducing nuance. The resurgence section actually does do that. When they're talking about the fallout from the Night of Iron Knives, they talk about how both House Fiona and Skaha went, oh, well... You guys do you, but we're going to go join the commoners now, because that was an atrocity. I don't remember seeing that anywhere else, and it's an interesting thing to do, narrative-wise. After discussing the Accordance War in America and the Treaty of Accord, they go on to talk about the other Accordance Wars in Europe, and 
it's not super in-depth, but it does point at the original direction of the meta plot. The way England works is different. The way Ireland works is different. The way five different regions of continental Europe work are all different. This game was originally conceived of as being regional, (laughs) not what they did with C20. I definitely like a lot of what they did with the other wars and the space that it built out. But in the age of C20, you do have to consider how you're going to use that. The next section of the book, which for me really covers chapters two and three, is the section that kind of reads like, as Simon put it, the commoner's kith book. And this whole section is just kind of uninteresting. You have a section that reads very much like a kith book. It kind of goes through the same checklist of things you're used to seeing, opinions on the Ashit and seemings and courts and houses of the she, except it's all from just the generic concept of being a commoner. And there are some gems here and there. There are a couple areas that talk specifically about Europe and the Galatian Confederation and that stuff's useful. That stuff's kind of interesting, but most of it's just not that useful. They're like almost two pages, not quite on seemings. And there's just no way to describe what seemings would be to commoners in general. There's a little tidbit at the very end of that section about wakes that commoners hold, because unlike the nobility, they are at the beginning of celebrating what their next life will be, their reincarnation. And like that little tidbit was useful, but it could have been part of a celebration and general cultural write-up as opposed to two pages of, I will never use this over what's in my Kith book. Kind of the whole section read that way to me. Yeah, this part of the book committed some of the sins I find most egregious in this book. The Ashit seemings and courts discussions were, I've seen that in too many books now, I don't care anymore. It just, they all read the same at this point. (laughs) The discussions about culture, like what the commoners do for holidays, was interesting. Like, I could see starting a game in that sort of a mode. The etiquette and morals section wasn't really my thing. Somebody probably likes it, but I feel like I have also read that before. (laughs) But the worst part of this section for me was the secret societies, which I don't hate the idea. Like, I honestly think commoners need something sort of like houses, because that's more interesting than just commoners join noble houses, and that's the only, like, way to put more flavor on your character. The problem the secret societies section had was not all of them. Some of them are introduced in this book. But a lot of them, you read them, and there's like a couple of paragraphs of vague description of what it is, followed by, now go buy this other book where we actually wrote about this. I don't know, I just don't appreciate that. Like, I feel like I wasted my time reading the non-description, and I would have honestly just preferred, like, with the ranters, instead of being like, we're going to talk about the ranters for a minute. 
Now, if you really want to read anything about this, go buy Shadow Court. Just tell me, we have described this in the Shadow Court book on this page. Don't waste my time with words that don't mean anything, you know? Yeah, I had a huge problem with that. And it's not just in the Secret Society section. Later on in the character write-ups, they literally do it with characters, where most of the characters are, you know, a third of a page, a few paragraphs, maybe a longer, more fleshed-out character might be a whole column. And then you'll get these characters that are one paragraph, and at the end it says, to actually read about them, go pick up this book. And I found it kind of insulting, especially because there was so much here that was just reproduced from other books anyway, and I couldn't help but look at all of the wasted word count. There were one or two areas where they did something with something from another book. They had a whole section where they talked about the meta plot from Kingdom of Willows as it related to the war. They were clearly seeding. This book is clearly seeding war in Concordia. I don't like how much that whole section focused on the she, given that this is supposed to be a book about the commoners, but it was at least putting this thing from another book into the context of what Fool's Luck was doing and then saying, if you want to know more, it's over here, but this is enough to serve the purpose this book serves. I'm okay with that, like interconnect your texts, but saying I'm going to waste time just giving you a pickup write-up on a group, but not really, but go get this other book, just don't put it in there. If I'm someone who's going to buy all the source books, I'll buy them, I'll get it, I'll know about them, I can use them. There was a lot of that in this book, and it really bothered me. That kind of gets into chapter three as well, because chapter three is, I suppose, nominally the character creation discussion that nobody asked for because we all have the core book. And some of the text is, I don't know if it's like actually reproduced from one of the core books or some other book, but it might as well be because there's a discussion about like, making a background for your character and you have to consider things like their politics and yes you do i'm pretty sure something very much to that tune is in the core book (laughs) like why are you telling me this here that's kind of the opposite where instead of being like i'm giving you useless information go read the useful stuff by buying this other book this is like i'm wasting your time with something you've already read in a different book but I could have just like said, look at the core book on this page, and it would have been way more efficient. <laughs> also, the sheer volume of time that is spent basically saying, hey, all of this political stuff isn't like the she we swear. Here's how it maps to the she. It's exactly like the she. And we're going to spend paragraphs writing up what conservative, moderate, and radical means. But you could also use a dictionary because we didn't deviate from the dictionary term at all. It's painful. It's painful. Like, unfortunately so. I actually disagree. They did deviate from the dictionary definitions a little bit because unsubtle bias comes through if you actually read them. And whoever wrote this section is deeply, deeply unsettled by the idea of radicals existing, like, in any context. Yeah, I mean, the fact that when you get to the pre-made characters, you have conservatives you have moderates, and then you have bad guys and radicals. That's a section. I mean, it's not subtle. It's really not subtle. But chapter three does have some good stuff in it. It has some merits and flaws. 
I don't hate them. This is the book that Metamorphosis as an art was introduced in. I actually don't get why that wasn't a vanilla power, considering the subject matter. But okay. And there are actually player-usable treasures introduced here. So, also, decent things people might want. Yeah, the crunch is all good. In an era of C20, I wouldn't pick up the book for the crunch now. It's all represented fairly well in C20. Some of the treasures aren't, but the treasures and the arts and the backgrounds could literally be in any other book. You get Kinane as a background. It's like the retainer background from Vampire. Changeling hadn't had it previously, but everyone kind of went, why not? My biggest problem with this chapter, despite the content being quality, is it could be in any other Changeling book, and it would work just as well. There's really not a lot of commoner flavor at all. Aside from maybe more naturalistic Fae would be inclined towards metamorphosis, I guess. Quick question. This was second edition, right? Yes, this was pre-Arc House. I would put this pretty close to the end of second edition for the World of Darkness overall. Changeling yeah. never got a revised, but there were definitely books released in the revised era of World of Darkness, and this is not that. I think this is late second edition. Yeah, so in second edition, they did have a retainer background. It was called Retinue. This is just, specifically, you have Kinane bitches. Which is useful. It doesn't take a lot of imagination, and I think people were already doing it. Again, mm-hmm. it's not bad, but it could have been in literally any book. Yeah, and also I think the Enchanted has another background called Kinane, where you are Kinane, so good times. Also true. The central section, which is very player fodder, is a mixed bag. It's not awful, but it's not awe-inspiring either. Then you get into the storyteller stuff, and the storyteller stuff I actively disliked. I will admit up front, some of that is personal bias. I don't like books that tell me how to story tell. I accept that core books are going to have a chapter that goes into that, and I don't begrudge that. That doesn't bother me at all because, you know, new people are going to pick it up. And I don't mind storyteller books that are all about that. That's cool. I will never buy those books, but I don't begrudge them existing. I do mind when there is a primarily flavor book that spends a chapter telling me how to be a storyteller. And this book definitely does that. I don't need that. I don't want that word count. And I don't want to pay for that word count to go on my shelf again. Might not be everyone's pet peeve, but it is definitely mine. I skimmed the storyteller chapter. The things I found most interesting were all the discussions about theme, because I actually like the themes that this book is aiming at. We can talk about whether or not they actually hit those themes, but explicitly laying out the objective, I don't think that's like necessarily a bankrupt exercise. However, that's a very small part of this chapter. <laughs> I, Like I said, I skimmed it, and um, generally when I'm skimming reading one of these books, it's because I have read this too many times already, and... I have definitely read this too many times already. (laughs) 
I'll agree on the theme section. The area that talked about themes wasn't a wasted exercise, but I would rather there be little bits about themes sprinkled throughout the book as opposed to a whole chapter where the more typical highlights of that chapter were, remember, make your antagonists real people. And I was just like, yeah, I know. But you didn't do that book. I mean, that too. There's just not a lot in that chapter that's that useful aside from the page or so. It may be two pages that like goes through the major themes, how to invoke them. That's kind of useful. The rest of the chapter sort of isn't. And then later sort of moving from the just how do you storytell into names, places, things. There are some decent NPCs here. There's also a Kithane who is a serial Nunyihi killer, and we're going to spend some time trying to justify that. Like, down to the little signature on each of my victims' corpses kind of serial killer? That did not sit well with me. This is clearly not meant to be an out-and-out antagonist because of the work they do to, like, justify it at the beginning, and no. And then there were the characters where, like I said, you only got a few lines, and then I go read this book. Again, no. You want to build a ready-made adventure and reference some other characters? Cool. You're building a usable thing. Give me a couple lines to use them and then say, hey, if you really want to dive in and do more than a cameo, go over here. I'm fine with that. That's not what this did. This was like, I'm going to sort of give you a write-up, but not really. You still have to do the work to build the adventure. What? Like, there are some usable NPCs. Some of them are decent. I really resented the fact that they were organized into conservatives or loyalists, moderates, and the bad guys. Oh, and we put the radicals in here and it's not by association. Just like, whatever. I, no, (laughs) I'm, I'm real over if you're not for the crown, you are a villain. I'm, I'm over that, especially in this book of all books. Doing that is a real questionable choice. And just the amount of time they spent on how to storytell, they could have actually put an adventure in the back, and it would have been much more usable. But they didn't. When I was reading the Names and Places chapter, I rarely use that sort of stuff, except for, like, as a shame character for somebody who forgets their character sheet to a game, which happens. Yeah, I also found the, let's call it organization, <laughs> of the uh, the characters kind of strange in my notes on this chapter i didn't actually use the terms they put in because i i used feudalists class traders and radicals mostly just to rebel against how obvious the bias was because <laughs> like whoa especially and you're right in a commoner book where the overall theme is mostly like hey the she came back and some parts of that were good most of it wasn't Playing the pro-feudalism commoners as, you know, the default, the moderates as kind of annoying, and the anti-feudalists as the bad guys was strange. I also noticed that in the the bad guys section, they included some tie-in for Kingdom of Willows in a character who's part of King Milgi's court. And he's very, very clearly supposed to be part of the Shadow Court. 
that was when the light bulb went on for me where I was like, oh, that's what they mean by radicals. They mean shadow court, which is the banality court in this game. What? Yeah, I actually read that write-up and I went, wait, he works for Milg, and there's nothing in here about him subverting Milg. Like, I thought this was the radicals, and I went back and I looked at the heading and I'm like, oh, outlaws rascals and radicals i see and if you look there's like one or two actual anti-monarchists and a bunch of bad guys and it's like this is not subtle kids it's very clear the framing you're creating here yeah it's one of the weird places where like as much as I like the things this book is attempting versus the way it was implemented in C20, I prefer the C20 implementation of this problem much better. <laughs> like, let's have the Black Court and the Shadow Court all fighting each other. It's not perfect, but it's definitely better than this. Yeah, especially once you get into the C20 Player's Guide version of it, where it is explicitly a struggle, and that at least sets up conflict in fairy society i like that i am for that i mean one of the things i like about what fool's luck tries to do it kind of gives up on it at the end but i like that fool's luck sets up tensions within fairy society within the scope of what players could play that are acute enough to be the driving force of a campaign all of the other world of darkness games have that Werewolf probably has the least of it, but even in Werewolf, there is a lot of fighting and tension within, you know, the society of the Garu themselves. Changeling has always kind of shied away from that, like, Seelie, unseelie, but you have both inside your heart, so you understand each other, really. And it's like, okay, and I like the Fool's Luck starts to move away from that, and it starts to go towards something more like... How the Shadow Court is set up in the C20 Player's Guide. And then you get to the NPCs, and it's just like, mm, that not. And it's really confusing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It'd be like picking up like a union pamphlet and having them like try to justify right to work laws. Okay, cool. So like you're pro labor, except you're anti union and you're a union. Huh? And then in chapter six they have pre-gen characters, which are different from, I guess, the way they handle named NPCs. Not super clear on why it's different, but it's different. Again, skimmed it. Did you have any thoughts? You know, in the era of ready-made characters where you get a full backstory and characters that have relationships with each other and are ready to pick up and go, I have a hard time reading and critiquing the old PC templates. Everything from this era... Really everything from original White Wolf. The PC templates were concept, generic-ish backstory, maybe some interesting art, a stat sheet. And I think it was intentional to let players sort of imprint what they wanted on top of it. But in my experience, if you're picking up one of those templates, it's because you got together and decided you wanted to roleplay tonight. So let's just like grab some artifacts and do something silly what actually worked for that is a finished product. So, like, I kind of can't even get behind the design intent of the PC templates from this era, so I don't really want to critique them. That's fair. And the last little bit is the appendix. 
this is one of the few dreaming books where the appendix doesn't include errata for a different book. So we just get the introduction of Pisky and Spriggan. I don't hate Pisky. It's pretty boring, but it's what it is. Spriggan, I just looked at it and I was like, okay, I don't get why these are bad guys. Like, at all. They haven't done the work to make these seem awful. No. I mean, way back when we were doing the Kith episode at the very, very beginning, I looked up the myths for Pisky and Spriggan. Basically, they're the same fairy. They both kidnap kids, except Pisky's take them off to have a fun romp in fairy, and Spriggan's either never return them or torture them and, you know, damage them, and they come back broken. And the Piskies aren't even that. The Piskies are just kind of there. And the Spriggans kidnap kids, and it explicitly says they almost never harm them, even though they're evil. They're evil. It's made very clear that they're evil. But then it's also made very clear that they don't harm kids. They just, like, play jokes on them while they're kidnapped. And it's like, that's not good, but in the grand scheme of bad fairies, uh, these are supposed to be Thalane, and the Red Caps are over there scratching their heads about, what? Huh? What? Rent? I mean... Yeah, I mean Puka <laughs> is worse than this iteration of Spriggan. Yes, it really is. Also, didn't bother giving them seemings, even though there was a big swath of white space to put the seeming descriptions in, and a page earlier the Piskies had seemings. It was... I don't understand this ride at all. Great art, though. Great. Mm-hmm. Great art. Mwah. <laughs> yes. I also enjoyed the Spriggan art. It was gross in exactly the right way. <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. I love it so much. Just like the complaints of anti-feudalists, the points are made up and the score doesn't matter. So, what era of changeling development do you think this book fits into? That one's a little bit tricky. I am inclined to say Era 2, but really the whole topic kind of stands outside of what we've used to define the eras thus far. We've really talked about the eras in terms of how did the mythology change? Did Baylor matter? Was it the whole red court, white court, green court thing? You know, have we transformed the Thelane yet? And this book doesn't really have an opinion on any of that. I say Era 2 only because it's part of that later phase of Changeling where Changeling had a metaplot and this is setting that metaplot up in a lot of places. So I guess that's where I'd put it. It's kind of one-ish for me. The Thalane and the Fomorians, it doesn't really deal with what they are, but it does have that weird Shadow Court and Unseelie Court are mostly undifferentiated thing going on, also reflected in I can't tell the difference between serial killers and radicals thing. Um, But it doesn't have Fomorian cosmic horror thing going on that later Era 2 stuff does, but it does have... The Shadow Court as Melgi's puppets thing going on. It's a weird, like, fusion of the two bits. I think at best it's proof that our era model is something we came up with and doesn't always work. And how dare you say something so true? Is the system in this book functional? I mean, this book is like 99% narrative. Like, it introduces metamorphosis, 
and like all of the arts, the C20 version's better. So yeah, I mean the kits they introduce work aside from the Spriggan's lack of seamings, but maybe none of the Thelane were given seamings. The treasures are nice. The treasures are usable. Metamorphosis is good. You know, judging this by the time it came out, I'd say the system that's in here is actually really solid. It's not necessarily thematic, but it definitely works well. But again, C20 has better versions of all of it. So do you think Fool's Luck is cohesive with other Changeling the Dreaming products? I do. I actually think it's probably one of the most cohesive books I've read. I don't always like what it does with that cohesion. I think it could have been a little less markety. I can only interpret those very short, here's a stub of a thing, go get another book to read the thing as like a sales attempt, even though those other books were mostly out of print when this came out. So I don't love what it does with it. But yeah, it's it's actually very cohesive. So I have a complicated relationship with this question because like, I actually like the version of dreaming this book is trying to get toward. The thing is, is a lot of the thematic elements and metaplot history that this book is trying to set up is stuff that was axed in C20. I like a messy regional dreaming game where like nobody likes each other and politics is destroying everybody. But if you're going to go with the C20, like Concordia is everywhere and the Parliament of Dreams is in your heart stuff, this book doesn't fit as well. And I don't know how much of it works. I'm sure this will come as a shock to all of our listeners. I mostly gave this resounding yes because I don't like any of that stuff at all and I don't use it. (laughs) So read through the lens of what existed at the time the book came out, it cares the most about the fact that it's part of a line of any book that we've reviewed to date. And I like that. The narrative doesn't fit in C20, and that's only going to continue to get more pronounced as we get towards the end, the very, very end of the line. You know, if you like that stuff in C20, C20 is pretty adamant about the fact that it's alternate canon anyway. And I think that's more C20 not playing well with others and owning up to it than this book not playing well with others. Did you have an enjoyable reading experience? Oh, man. This is tough because what part of the book are we talking about? The first third of this book, I've got to give a 3.5. If you took out the racist parts, if that specific problem wasn't there, I'd give it a 4 or even a little more than a 4. First third is really well written, but like I just hit these walls of cringe and that kind of killed it for me. The middle of the book is like a three. It's well written. It's it just doesn't do anything innovative. The last third of the book, I don't want to give it less than a three. (laughs) There's just so much in there that is unnecessary and leans on other books to even justify being here. And that's just not good writing. So I've got to give it like a two and a half. It would take so little to increase those numbers, though. Overall, I guess I'd give it a three. But man, it's inconsistent. I'd give this book a three-ish as a whole, because like some parts of it are really good and some parts of it are really not. And even the good parts, 
they're kind of peppered with, for more information on this topic, buy this other book. And that really irritates me. Then it's also peppered with kind of racist stuff and a lot of dismissiveness about people having valid complaints about the setup of Concordia in the book, where you're supposed to be taking the commoner perspective, which is not well thought out. I want to say these are little things, but they're not really. Changing the overall attitude this book has towards commoners who are looking out for their own interests and not those of 5% of the the changeling population who are already, you know, fucking royalty, kind of requires rewriting a lot of this book. This is a total good effort looking forward to the next draft sort of rating for me. (laughs) Yeah, and then that brings us to the art, the aesthetic value. How did you rate this in terms of the art overall? The art in this book is pretty good. I'd give it a four-ish. Like, there were bits of it where I was like, eh, it doesn't do anything for me. And there were bits of it, like, the Spriggan, where I was like, oh, this is great. The great outnumbered the mediocre for the art for me. Yeah, I agree. This book also did something that not a lot of Changeling books do, and I've harped on this before. There are a number of pictures where I went, oh, that's contemporary. I That changeling exists in the here and now, and I can tell that. It's not random high fantasy art. You're wearing a kink harness. You're wearing a t-shirt that says, Dave Thomas is my bitch. It's contemporary, and it makes it feel lived urban fantasy. Some of it legitimately dark lived urban fantasy. I really, really liked that. It's also very energetic where the art is messy it's intentionally messy and atmospheric as black and white art goes i thought it did a lot of really interesting things i would also give this a four i mean five is kind of reserved for like the high color period but this is about as good as the black and white eric gets i guess my one sentence review for this book is if you want a grittier, street-level changeling, you could do worse than Fool's Luck. My one-sentence review is, if you've always really wanted that solid history source book that you could never find in the catalogs, this is just a misbranded version of that. You should buy it. All right, that was our review episode of Fool's Luck, Way of the Commoner. Hopefully, they keep getting better from here, because this one was pretty okay, mostly. Yeah, we can only hope. Thank you for joining us and listening to our pendulous opinions. I hope that you got something useful out of it and that it gave you an idea of whether or not this is a book you personally want on your shelves. If you love it dearly, don't pay attention to us. It's totally fine. We're used to it. And I do hope that if you did find something useful, you come and join us again for our next conversation on Walking Away from Arcadia.
<laughs> oh, we're both a couple of grumps complaining about changeling books. 